you're afraid to fail. In reality, you already failed because you're not going to try. That's true. Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed, that because you haven't tried new things before. Now you're Canada, right? Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky said that I'm going to miss 100% of the shots that I don't take. Yeah. <laughs> Simple. And, and that's it, right? Um, the other part is that you actually have to fail fast because when you fail fast, you still have plenty of time to try a different approach, to build another version, to try a different uh, method, to try something else, right? And, and so you fail fast, you still have plenty of time. If you fail again and again and again, you still have multiple shots, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the reality is that if you have more shots, then you increase the likelihood of making one. Welcome to the Mobility Innovators Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mobility Innovator Podcast. I'm your host, Jaspal Singh. Mobility Innovator Podcast invites key innovators in the transportation and logistics sector to share their experience and future forecasts. In this episode, we'll be discussing the story of Waze and the secret sauce to find the product market fit for founders. Our today's guest is an amazing entrepreneur, mentor, company builder, speaker, and author. He has co-founded and advised many amazing startups. Two of them are part of our daily life. Waze, helping car drivers, and MoveIt, helping public transit rider. And MoveIt, helping public transit rider. Waze, founded in 2007, revolutionized the way people navigate and commute by leveraging crowdsourced data. In 2013, Google acquired Waze for approximately $1.1 billion. He was also the board member of MoveIt, which simplifies your urban mobility all around the world, making getting around via transit easier and more convenient. MoveIt was acquired by Intel for $1 billion in May 2020. He also became a company builder and mentoring numerous startups in Israel and around the world. He's recognized as an influential figure in the Israeli startup ecosystem. Known for his entrepreneurial spirit, business acumen, and commitment to making a positive impact. His experience and insight continue to inspire and guide aspiring entrepreneurs worldwide. He's also the author of best-selling book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. I'm so happy to welcome Uri Levin, co-founder of Waze and many other startups. It's now time to listen and learn. Hello, Iri. I'm really excited and grateful that you accepted our invitation. The day I read your book, I decided I should reach out to you and, and record this conversation with you because like I, I told you, it's like a mini MBA for me. Again, after 10 years back when I did my MBA and after reading this book, I feel like a mini MBA. And I feel it's important to share your knowledge and experience with everyone. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate the, the feedback. Great. And uh, I would like to kickstart our discussion with your personal journey. And I would say it's like BW and AW. It's like before Waze and after Waze. So would love to know more about your personal background. How did you start your career and start ecosystem? Because when, when I read your book, you mentioned it's not that your first startup, you were doing a lot before that. And any interesting fact about your career, any secret, which is still not in public domain? So, um, you know, I started as a software developer at the um, military service, Israeli Defense Forces. And then after that, I was actually software developer for Converse Systems, right? So Converse Technology was doing uh, voicemail. 
And some many years ago, uh, we all had voicemails associated with our mobile phone. Yeah. Um, and um, and then I switched into more of marketing and business and in um, starting in within Converse some um, you know divisions or product divisions. Um, in around 2000, I um, you know I moved uh, out of Converse and started my first startup uh, that was not successful. Um, and back and forth, uh, um, you know, supporting many startups, consulting to some startups. Uh, um, rolled into 2007, where I met uh, the other two co-founders of Ways, and we decided that this is what we're gonna do. Um, and so I'm, uh, I would say I'm in the high tech scene since uh, um, 1984, so ah. almost 40 years. Yeah, and I'm in the startup scene since uh, 2000, so a little bit, uh, um, almost 23 years already. Um, and I probably will remain in those space forever. No, that's that's great, and and I agree with you. Sometimes uh, the failure teach you much uh, more lesson than than the success. So first start of failure, give you much more lessons. You actually, we learn more from um, you know the reality is that if you do something and it turns out to be successful, then the key learning is that I'm a genius, right? So this is this is <laughs> my, the point of view, even though that. Uh, you should have learned from that what did work and why, right? But if you fail, then you learn so much more, right? And usually what uh, what happens is that the failures are the best teachers there are. I, I fully agree. I fully agree that failure, failure, fail people are the best teacher because they can share what went wrong and uh, how you can do better. No, great. Thanks for sharing that. And it's great to see 40 years you are in technology space. That's remarkable. And 23 year in startup, so I can I can see tons of experience and knowledge, and that's why you are one of the person unique person who managed to pull out so many successful startup. So Waze is one of the remarkable startup of our time. I mean, everybody loves Waze. Anybody who travel around, they know the value of Waze. So would love to hear the story of Waze from you. Uh, why did you start it? Because I read in the book uh, how did you start it, but I would love to know from your mouth, uh, why this idea came to you and mm -hmm. how did you manage to scale it up? Because it was not easy. Uh, and and you also managed to have one of the greatest exit of that time, uh, pulling out and doing everything. I'm very curious about the behind story. I mean, you wrote a lot about in the book, but uh, what went in your mind when things were happening, how you were feeling and and uh, when the success happened, What how life changed after that? So, um, so for a second, I would say, um, you know, the short version is that I started ways because I hate traffic jams, right? but, uh, <laughs> but everyone hates traffic jams, right? And yeah. that by itself is not enough. It's, uh, it was the eureka moment of the realization that if there is someone ahead of me on the road and that someone can tell me what's going on, then this is uh, um, really valuable information for me. And in particular, if it's being compiled into the fastest route. And I was um, sort of discovered that by coincidence back in 2006, uh, when we were in a family vacation in the northern part of Israel, and Israel is a small place, at the end of the day, it was time to go back to Tel Aviv, and, uh, and back then there were only two alternative routes, right, and so, um, and we were like um, 10 different vehicles there, and, um, and we had four little kids, so we were the last one to leave. And I called up um, some of the other drivers. 
but ask them which route they are on mm. and how is traffic light, right? And then I realized that all I need is someone ahead of me on the road. It was more than a year later until I actually found the two other co-founders that uh, believed in the same vision and the same mission of helping drivers to avoid traffic jams, and in particular on their daily commute, right? because um, um, ways, you know, when using it today also as a navigation driving tool, but most people, if you would ask them how often do you use Waze, they will tell you every day. Every day that I go to the office, I'm using Waze because, uh, and, and it's not that I don't know how to get there, but uh, I would like to know how long it's going to take me. And if there is a fastest route today, then, then maybe I would use that but and so we ended up with uh, having the vision of uh, helping drivers to avoid traffic jams and essentially, you know, save people time. Over the years, we realized that there is way bigger value than that, which is uh, um, providing certainty, right? So ETA, you know, most people will tell me, I don't care that there is a fastest route. Yeah. I know that this, my route is going to take me 55 minutes and I'm going to be there on time and I'm good with that. And there might be another route that is faster, but I don't care. So the certainty turns out to be very valuable. The um, people told me that I have empowered them to drive, right? So obviously you came from India, you know that uh, for non-Indian to drive in <laughs> India is, uh, is challenging, right? Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and, but with ways, uh, you empower people to drive out of uh, their out of their comfort zone, right? And so empowerment, uh, um, certainty, turns out to be way bigger value than saving people uh, time. Um, even though that we started with this vision. Um, so we started the company back in 2007 and we basically said, okay, wait a minute, we need to raise capital. And uh, um, because we had a prototype version running on a PDA long, long, long time ago, there were dinosaurs and then PDAs and then Nokia phones. And since then the world evolved, right? And uh, um, and so we were trying to raise capital. It was only until March 2008 that we were able to raise capital. And this is where we formally started the company and built the first real-time version of Waze running on a Nokia phone. Yeah. And this is what we launched in, in Israel. And end of uh, 2008, actually beginning of 2009, we launched that in Israel. And after a few more iterations, it ended up to be pretty good. And um, and then we said, wait a minute, if this is working in Israel and traffic jams is a problem everywhere, then we should launch that globally. Yeah. Yeah. We did some adaptation to that and uh, um, and we ended up with launching the product globally at the end of 2009. And it was not good enough. It was not good enough in Toronto. It was not good enough in the US, it was not good enough in India, it was not good enough in Western Europe, it was not good enough nearly anywhere. Um, because the you know the magic of ways is that we crowdsource everything, not just graphic information and speed traps, but the map data itself. Yeah. And this process of, of crowdsourcing is actually creating uh, better and better and better data over time. But it takes time for the data to become good enough. And that, that was a full year of iterations of improving the product, improving the data, improving the product, improving the data. Some of those iterations, it was, you know, you made a baby step forward. Some of those iterations, you make a leapfrog, which is awesome, yeah. right? Some of those iterations, actually worse than before. 
And obviously, you don't know which one of the iteration is going to make the impact. If you would know, then you will start with those <laughs> big frogs. Yeah. Um, and it was only around 2000, um, end of 2010 or beginning of 2011, that it started to become good enough in multiple places. And then it was really good enough. It was good enough in, in you know, in the US, that was one metropolitan after that or so. So Los Angeles first, and then San Francisco, and then Chicago, and Atlanta, and Washington, DC, and New York, and Toronto, and so forth. In Europe, one country after that, Italy first, and then Netherlands, and then um, uh, Sweden and France and Spain in one country after that, right, and so forth. India, by the way, very surprising numbers. You know, I was uh, looking at the, mostly the global markets and yeah. I was telling myself, okay, wait a minute, traffic jams in India are really bad and therefore we should be extremely successful, right? But this is 2010 or maybe 2011. And if you look at the Indian market back then, then you would see that if you had a smartphone back then, you also had a driver. Yes, and that, if you had a driver, then you sit in the back seat, then you don't really care, and that's the reality. <laughs> so now there are probably, you know, I would imagine that there are hundreds of millions of people in India that are using Waze, but uh, but back then that was uh, yeah. dramatically different. Um, and uh, um, and then in 2012, Waze was actually growing faster than the entire industry combined. So you take all navigation devices and all in-car navigation system and all navigation apps and so forth, ways outgrew all of them combined. And, and you know, 2013, Google came with a proposal to acquire us and we said yes. Yeah. And I left the day after so I can build more startups. So this is really a very short version of the, of the journey, but... Um, when you think of building a startup, when you think of the journey itself, I would define this journey as, uh, you know, in three different dimensions. Um, number one, this is going to be a roller coaster journey, right? Yeah. With ups and downs and ups and downs. And, and look, if you'll tell me that all the businesses in the world have ups and downs, and definitely in the last few years we are seeing that, I agree. But the frequency of those when you're building a startup are dramatically high. Um, and I think that I heard the best quote here on from Ben Horvitz. Ben Horvitz is uh, one of the founders of a recent Horvitz venture capital firm. And before that, he used to be a CEO of a startup. And he was asked whether or not he was sleeping well at night as a CEO of a startup. He said, oh, yeah, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried. <laughs> this is the roller coaster part of it. The other part is that this is going to be a journey of failures, right? Yeah. Um, and and look, we're trying to do something that no one did before, right? And so we we think that we know exactly what we're doing, but the reality is that we don't. So we try one thing and it doesn't work. We try another thing and it doesn't work. We keep on trying different things until we find one thing that does work. Yeah. And when we do, then we buy ourselves a ticket to the next part of the journey, right? And so if you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then there are two immediate conclusion, right? The first one is that if you're afraid to fail, in reality, you already failed because you're not going to try. That's true. Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed, that because you haven't tried new things before. Now you're Canada, right? Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky said that I'm going to miss 100% of the shots that I don't take. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's it, right? Um, the other part is that you actually have to fail fast because when you fail fast, you still have plenty of time 
to try a different approach, to build another version, to try a different uh, method, to try something else, right? And and so you fail fast, you still have plenty of time. If you fail again and again and again, you still have multiple shots, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reality is that if you have more shots, then you increase the likelihood of making one. That's Very a, simple. That's Very a good point. Um, and the last part of this journey is that this is going to be a long journey, very yeah. long. And in particular, at the beginning, the longest part is always when you're trying to figure out product market fit and you don't get there, right? And so you are iterating and you think you are there, but you are essentially in the middle of the desert, in the desert of no traction, right? Because if you don't have product market fit, you will die, as simple as that. <clears throat> and product market fit, by the way, what, what I mean by saying product market fit is that you create value to your users or to your customers. And now it makes perfect sense, right? If you don't create value for them, then you will die. That's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> also, a derivative of that, the realization is that there is only one metric for product market fit, and this is a retention. Yeah. You create value, they will come back. If you don't create value, guess what? They're not going to come back, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, this is the only metric for product market fit. And it's simply hard to get there. It's simply hard. It's a journey of failures. And in particular, you usually don't have enough funding from the beginning to actually get there. And so you will need to try to raise capital in the middle of the desert. And guess what? Capital is not easy in the middle yeah. of the desert. Um, and, and by the way, if you, you know, for a second, I would say, Think of all the applications that we are using every day, right? So, so from Waze, WhatsApp, searching Google, using Uber, Netflix, Instagram, whatever it is, and ask yourself, what is the difference between any of those today and the first time that you have used that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We're using Waze or WhatsApp or Uber or whatever it is, the same way that we did it for the first time in our life. So once a company figure out product market feed, they don't change that anymore. Getting there is a long journey. In fact, you never heard of a company that did not figure out product market feed. They simply died. That's it. Yeah. It was four years for ways until you maybe heard of it because this is where we were in the middle of the desert trying to figure out and create product market feed. And only then you would hear about them. It was five years for Microsoft. It was 10 years for, for Netflix, right? It's a long journey to get there. Most companies, you know, most founders, most entrepreneurs, they don't know that when they start. And it's actually a good news that they don't know that because uh, that might be discouraging, right? It's going to be a long while yeah. before you actually create any value. But, uh, but the, you know, the journey to the value creation is the only one that matters. Because if you create value, you will be successful. All these are, I would say, a great point. I mean, it's, it's again, bring back all the memory when I read your book about toothbrush model, build a product which everybody use twice a day. That, that's kind of stuff you need to do. And, <clears> and I love the point in your book when you said there are no bad decisions. Either there is a decision or there is no decision. And like you said, you have to take a decision, you have to play your shot, and then only you will find out whether it's good or bad. Otherwise, uh, it's all bad because if you don't take any decision, it's all bad. Exactly. A journey of failure. 
It's, um, you know, I, um, Steve Wozniak uh, called my book the Bible for entrepreneurs. And, uh, and when I first approached him, he told me, I wish I had that when I started. <laughs> um, because um, what I try to do, and this is uh, end of the day, you know, people would know me as an entrepreneur, right? And, and know that, right? I've built 10 different startups. I have two unicorns so far and I'm building more. And, and so I'm an entrepreneur, right? But I'm also a teacher. And so for a second, I would say I feel equally rewarded if I build stuff myself or guide someone to build it. And the book is fulfilling my destiny as, as a teacher, right? Because what I really want to do is share the know-how which is unique, right? The, the, the understanding the theory is easy, but, uh, but building companies and then sharing the know-how uh, is rather unique. And I see that as, uh, for now, I would say my biggest creation so far. So yeah. bigger than in the ability to actually make a bigger impact because, uh, you know, you look at the world today and you say, wait a minute, it's only changed by entrepreneurs, right? If you want to change something, then you will need someone that has Nothing to lose, right? And you look yeah. at all the top 10 companies of the world today, and they were all startups not that long time ago, right? So if you take uh, Apple and Google, uh, Apple and Microsoft out of the equation, the rest are less than 30 years old. Everyone else is less than 30 years old, right? And and Apple and Microsoft are 46 years old, right? So, so they saw that they are 400 years old, right? <laughs> Valley was created by an entrepreneur. Yeah. And... Uh, that started a different approach or or try to address a different problem or do something. And if I can increase the likelihood of entrepreneurs to become more successful, then the impact on the world is going to be bigger. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And in fact, I just want to add, uh, because to, the, to our listener uh, about your book, which is Fall in Love with the Problem, uh, Not with the Solution. And uh, I wish I had that book when I started my first company in 2010, because now I read it uh, and I've, realize man i did so many mistakes i i didn't follow what what should be the blueprint for this for the founder and entrepreneur so like steve was nick said so i wish i i should have the same book and i already read it twice even i'm not an founder now but i'm working more as advisor and mentor but i i already read it twice and i tell everybody to read it so i would say many congratulations for you to to writing that book and like you said you created two unicorn but with your book i don't know how many unicorn you are going to create and and people should come back to you and thank you if if they implement it and and personally I I tell my university uh, alma mater that they should introduce as a course book uh, because I said uh, you can't teach so much knowledge uh, in such a short time span so this is a book everybody should read so do you want to share a little more about your book and and I'm also curious when is the second part coming when are you writing your second uh, book now. So, um, so I don't know, um, but I probably will, um, you know, and, and I'm actually have uh, um, a little bit of uh, um, of uh, different perspective on what the second book should be all about. Um, part of it is actually, um, I thought that maybe this is going to be entrepreneur story. Mm. So showing, uh, um, you know, all the different or not all, but many of the different entrepreneurs that came to me for for a perspective. And this is probably going to um, re-emphasize the, the, you know, the simplicity of the book. And other part of me is saying, wait a minute, you're actually um, very unique in the space of mobility. 
Yeah. I have uh, about 700 million users of Waze and more than a billion users of Movit. And I have Zoomcar and now I have a parking solution. And I, I've seen mobility, you know, more mobility startups than anyone else probably. And, uh, and, uh, um, and maybe I should write a book about mobility, but it um, turns out that not a lot of people care. Right? So people like to complain, but, uh, but um, solving mobility is very challenging. Yeah. The good news is that, look, you can do steps in mobility that will add significant value, um, even if they are local, right? Even if I'm going to take care of, um, you know, what people usually call the last mile and they're wrong. Last mile is a, is a simpler problem. The first mile is the bigger problem. Um, and uh, so just think of all people that are living in the suburbs of Toronto, and they can use the metro or the public transportation to go into the center area. But the station is um, two miles away. Yeah. So what is likely to happen is that they're going to take their car and drive to the station. And then they figure out that there is no not enough parking near the station. And then the, what, what is going to happen is that they will continue to drive with their car into the city of Toronto, which is uh, the nature of the beast of the first mile. Because yeah. if there was a different solution that is going to take them from home to the train station, then they would re dramatically reduce the traffic going into the city and as a result, make Toronto a way better place to live. Uh, and this is local, right? Very, yeah. very local. And most people are focusing on the last mile, but the last mile is not a problem if you haven't solved the first mile. Last mile. Um, and uh, um, and and so we you know we think about it as everything coming from the center to the outskirt, and no, when it's come to people, they are coming from the outskirt into the center. Um, and so you need to deal with the first one. But this is just the, you know a perspective or or how important is parking, and uh, um, yeah. the reality is that um, in particular in in cities where people are living in, in multi-story uh, buildings, um, which is mainly in Europe or, or not necessarily in the US, right? You look at all the people in Toronto and you end up with realizing that 90% uh, of the people actually living in a single family house and they have parking garage and they have a driveway. And uh, because it's a single family house, they also have plenty of uh, room, uh, pl plenty of, state of, of uh, space on the street. But if you go to Europe or you go to India or you go yeah. to Latin America or you go to the rest of the world where urbanizations happened later and most people are actually living in a multifamily in a multifamily complex, and usually this is a you know a tall building, right? Not necessarily a hundred stories, could be yeah. four, six, eight, ten stories, right? And it was built either with no parking garage or with uh, a parking garage with the underlying assumptions of uh, of the previous centuries in terms of the of the number of vehicles needed to be supported. Then you end up with a very severe parking problem. And in these cities, what happened is that uh, looking for parking is the most frustrating part of the day. And this is every day, right? Toothbrush every yeah, day. Toothbrush. <laughs> and. Uh, um, 
And so this is a, this is dramatic, right? And uh, um, and if you can address that, then one of my startups is now addressing uh, the the on street parking for residential, right? and uh, um, and this is starting to become significant. Um, it turns out that about one third of the traffic mm. is people looking for for uh, parking. That's... You eliminate that if you reduce that even by a little. Instead of 33%, you reduce that to only 25%. You will end up with making significant impact on the overall mobility of a city or, or a place. Very true. Very true. Um, and, uh, um, but at the end of the day, look, the, the nature of the beast of mobility is I want you to imagine um, what is the the four hundred highway in Toronto? Yeah. Um. So I want you to think of one lane, and one kilometer in length. One lane, one kilometer, during the busy hour, say eight or nine a.m. Right. There are about forty vehicles in this one kilometer. In this forty vehicles, there are about forty-five people. That's yeah. it. The right. ratio between number of passengers and number of vehicles in, in North America is about 1.1. So 45 people are occupying one kilometer, right? And then you basically do the math and say, wait a minute, we simply don't have enough kilometers, right? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the nature of the beast is that we allocate too much space on the road because it's not just us, right? It's... Uh, our vehicle, and then we need to keep distance from the vehicles that we don't collide with other vehicles, and we end up with occupying too, way too much space. And if we change the ratio of number of passengers per vehicle, we eliminate traffic jams. Now, we can do that through public transportation, we can do that through um, um, carpool, carpool, there are multiple ways. But at the end of the day, without active engagements of the municipality it's not going to happen because if you want me to design you a, you know a public transportation system that will make perfect sense i will go back to the user right which is most people don't do right most people think of public transportation system or mobility system not from the user perspective but from the system perspective and in my mind if you build something that people are not going don't want to use guess what they're not going to use it and so you have invested tons of money in building a system that no one cares. You go back to the user and you ask the user, what do you care about? And you will end up with three, three parameters, right? Convenience, speed, cost. That's yeah. it. And that's the order, by the way. Convenience, speed. So obviously, if you want to build a system, then it needs to be able to take you from anywhere to anywhere. And it needs to be convenient, right? If it's not, then people will basically say, you know what, I'm going to drive my car. Um, and it needs to be faster than yeah. driving car because otherwise nothing is going to be equal to the convenience of driving your car. Actually, not exactly right because when you drive, then you cannot watch TV, you cannot read the newspaper, you cannot uh, work on something on your computer, right? So there are limitations that might be associated with the convenience of uh, of not driving the car, right? If you are using public transportation, then you will figure out that you can do all those and uh, um, and still get to the office on time. Um, and, and so convenience, speed, 
and, and then cost, right? I would design a system. I would basically say, you know what? I'm going to take half of the streets and half of the avenues in Toronto, and I'm going to convert them into a public transportation streets, right? Not just lane, straight. And in those streets, which is built not like a grid, I would have small vehicles going back and forth, high frequency small vehicles, right? Yeah. So say every minute, every two minutes in the busy hour, there is a small vehicle, maybe size of a minibus or a, or a van that is going and coming back, right? And then obviously, because this, these are dedicated lanes, you can give them priority on traffic um, than anyone else. And you can actually end up with, with a system that is somewhat similar to an elevator, right? Going back and forth, that's it. Limited capacity, obviously, elevators is, uh, is only a single vehicle. Actually, not all the elevators in the world, but most of them is single vehicle. But think of a vehicle of, a, of a, you know, tens of vehicles that are going back and forth on the same street. Because it's every other street, then you yeah. enable anywhere to anywhere because it's dedicated lane you end up with uh, not waiting for traffic and actually way faster than anything else uh, and now you end up with only the issue of uh, of price right for a second i would say we should subsidize that mm. so public transportation is subsidized anyhow and it, there are places that it's subsidized by a hundred percent oh yeah from the Baltic countries into Perth in Australia, there are some places that have tried a hundred percent subsidy, and it turns out that it's actually pretty good. Um, and uh, and if you think of dedicated lane, right? If this street is only for uh, public transportation vehicles, and all those vehicles are actually small vans going back and forth, um, then they can be autonomous. That's that I was thinking about the same. They can be autonomous and and providing high frequency running uh, exactly. one after like the, like an elevator, right? <laughs> the elevator is autonomous now. There is yeah. no driver for the elevator, but uh, but when I was kid, there was still a driver for the elevator, right? Yeah. And so obviously, if this is dedicated lane, you can easily do that. And uh, um, and uh, and you know, if the mayor of Toronto is listening to this podcast and decide that this is what they are going to implement. Look, everyone is going to be chill out, right? Because you basically say, I'm going to take half of the streets and make them only for public transportation, right? If you live in this street, then you have no access for your car anymore. Um, or maybe it's uh, you know, just between, you know, 3 and 9 p.m. and between, you know, 7 and uh, 10 a.m., right? And so, um, but at the end of the day, you will end up with a so much more efficient system. Yeah that everyone is going to be thankful oh yeah very true no I, and i love your i love your point in fact you should write two books one on mobility and one on you know lesson <laughs> lesson from entrepreneur and sign sign me for the pre-order because i would love to read it uh, the point you mentioned i mean the data you have on your tips it's it's amazing you you understand the problem and like you said you built two startup in mobility you understand this space so well so it's it's great to see other question I want, which you which you mentioned, which you actually thinking about writing a book because you have already shared so many lessons in your first book, uh, like how to build a successful startup. But can you share some of the common mistake made by the entrepreneur in their journey, and and any additional blind spot for mobility startup? Like you mentioned about mobility startup, 
and and what i love the point you mentioned about convenience speed and cost and a lot of mobility startup they don't do these thing they just build the product they don't uh, think about the users so what are the blind spots for the startup especially the mobility one so so i would start with uh, you know the, the more generic approach and then you know you know the, the book called fall in love with the problem not the solution this turns yeah. out to be very significant right a lot of people are starting their journey from a solution perspective rather than and and then you know and then looking for a problem right and in general i would say no you should you know you should start with the problem think of a problem a big problem something that it's worth solving yeah um, then ask yourself so who has this problem right and if you happen to be you know the only person on the planet then you know go to a shrink and <laughs> faster than being a startup but if a lot of people have this problem, what you really want to do next is go and speak with those people and understand their perception of the problem. And only then go and build a solution. Now, if you follow this path and your solution works, it's guaranteed that you are creating value. Because for me, solving a problem is the simplest way to create value, right? Someone told you, this is the problem, right? And yeah. so all you have to do is solve that and you create value, right? And so not only that it's the simplest way, there are two other things that are going to happen if you remain focused on the problem. One is that the problem is going to serve as the North Star of your journey. And if you have a North Star, then you're going to make less deviations from the journey, which increases the likelihood of being successful. The second part is that uh, your story way more compelling. Right? If mm -hmm. I would be here in 2007 and I will tell you, I'm going to build an AI crowdsource-based navigation system. Then you say, oh, very interesting. <laughs> you don't care. If I will tell you I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams, then you do care. Mm -hmm. And so when you tell a problem, when you tell a story about the problem, then you, it's easier to engage your customers, your users, your investors, the media, everyone. Um, and, and so starting with the problem turns out to be pretty significant. Now, in particular... The hardest part is to tell yourself, so who has this problem? Hmm. And in mobility, if you think that the municipality have the problem, no, they have a different problem. The users have a problem, right? They are the ones that are get stuck in traffic. They are the ones that are needs to, you know, hmm. essentially go on a bus that is too crowded and they feel uncomfortable. They are the one that actually paying the price of, uh, of insufficient or not good enough service. So you have to start with the users. And this is true for all the startups. And then you end up with actually asking yourself, so, okay, what is the value that I'm going to create for those users? And, and the problem is going to be the trigger point. But then you ask yourself, okay, in order to create value, then, then I need to solve that problem. But for whom? What is the value that I bring to those users? The funny part is that when we started Waze, we thought about saving saving people time on their daily commute. It's not the most significant value. It's actually the ETA that is the, the most significant value because you yeah. can plan. You can you can be on time everywhere, and you don't need to get there half an hour earlier. You can you know you can still you know check the ETA and basically say I don't need to be there an hour earlier in order to make sure that I'm there on time. You can be there on time as simple as that. And so um, the user ended up to be very perspective, very important perspective. And, and I think that many of the startups that I've seen, they 
might have started this journey with the problem, but yeah. they very soon forget about it. Because if I speak with um, you know entrepreneurs and ask them, okay, so what do you do? Most of the time, what I would hear is our system is right, which is basically focused on the solution. Or in so if you speak about yourself, you focus on the solution. If you'll tell someone this is the problem I'm addressing, then you focus on the problem. I hear about ten out of hundred that this is their story, right? The best story, by the way, this is the value that we create for you, which is focused on the user. But this is occasionally harder because people don't understand the value if they don't understand what the problem is. And, and therefore, I would say, you know, out of 100 startups, about uh, somewhere between 80 to 90 of them are going to start with, this is our system, our system is, right? And, and not that aware. So this turns out to be pretty significant, uh, failing fast, right? Failing fast is, is dramatic. The biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. You don't need to be perfect in order to win the market. You need to be good enough. And the best way to become good enough is, guess what? Is you start with not good enough. And then through iterations, you become good enough. And then and then you win the market. So for a second, I would say for, for all entrepreneurs in the world, just imagine that there are two twin sisters companies, right? They started exactly the same day. They're doing exactly the same thing. They have exactly the same story, the same team. Everything is exactly the same. And they are making exactly the same progress. Now, at a certain point of time, this company is saying, you know what, our product is really bad. It's really sad. We, we are going to keep on building it. Right? And this company is, you know what, our product is really bad. It's really sad. But we are going to go to the market with it. From this point on, this company is making so much faster progress. And this is the, the most important part because this company is way more likely to win the market because of the progress that they're making. Yeah. Now, a lot of times I tell that to entrepreneurs and they're telling me, no, 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 you don't understand. Our product is embarrassing <laughs> level. If I'm going to launch that, I'm going to lose my users. And then I would tell them, oh, wait a minute, you don't even have users. Have user. <laughs> right? And so what exactly are you going to lose? Oh, we're going to hurt our brand name. You don't have a brand name yet. And, and the reality is that this is the journey of failures. This is the failing fast. This is the meaning of that. Is that you're actually going to do experiments, real life experiments, right? Faster. Because this is how you're going to learn. You're going to learn by listening to the users and improving. Listen to the users and improving. Hmm. Um, one of the things that turns out to be um, you know, pretty significant is um, I spoke with many entrepreneurs that their startup failed. And asked them why, what happened. And about half told me the team was not right. Yeah. And I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? right? And so what I heard the most is, you know, we had this guy not good enough. And so not good enough was the main reason. Another reason that I heard quite often is that we had uh, communication issues, right? Something that I actually called uh, ego management issues. And then asked them the most interesting question. When did you know that the team is not right? Now, that was scary because all of them told me within the first month. Yeah. One that told me before we even started, right? I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team is not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Yeah. Making easy decisions is easy. Making hard decisions is hard. Firing someone is very hard decisions. There is a chapter in my book that called Firing and Hiring. Yeah, I read that. And when, 
And when I wrote that and I sent, you know, the book proposal to multiple publisher, they told me, some of them told me, look, it should be hiring and firing. And I said, <laughs> no, firing is hard decision. Hiring is easy decision. Easy. You need to learn how to make the hard decisions before you can even make these decisions. And then I ended this chapter with a very strong conclusion, right? Every hiring manager in the world, and it doesn't matter if this is a startup or a university or a corporate or a government, whatever it is, every time that you hire someone new, mark your calendars for 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Hmm. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer is no, then fire them immediately. They are already set on a trajectory of not being successful. They are going to fail, and this is going to be on your head. Right? Hmm. Now, there is a bigger challenge. If there is a bigger challenge because startup is a small organization. Right? If there is someone that shouldn't be there, everyone knows. Everyone knows, and the CEO doesn't do anything. That's the nature of the beast. So in order to convert an organization into a way better, you occasionally would ask yourself, so, so what is going to have a bigger impact? Hiring another awesome person or firing someone that shouldn't be there? Yeah. Firing someone that shouldn't be there because everyone knows. And the impact is on everyone and not just on that particular individual. Now, if you would answer that question, would I would you hire this person knowing what you know today? Then I would say, wait a minute, go and tell that person that they are, you know, that they have exceeded your expectation, that you are extremely pleased with the fact that they have joined the team. And if you can do something for them, then this is the time to do it, right? So maybe more equity, maybe a bonus, maybe whatever token of recognition. Yeah. Uh, is the now it's the time to do it. I mean, these, these are, I mean, again, I would say when I read the book, I realized I did a lot of these mistakes when I was founder, I had everyone, a lot of people, everyone. <laughs> everyone do that, everyone do that. And, and, and the point you mentioned about uh, understanding user, that's some people miss. In fact, I use your cheat sheet. Now, any founder come to me with the solution. I say, okay, what is the problem you're solving? So tell me first about the problem. And like you said, people don't want to talk about problem. They just want to talk about the solution, which is which is not worth. You need to understand why you are doing this. It start with the why, right? Yeah, start start with, with the why, and and then whom, and then whom, <laughs> and and uh, I I'm surprised a lot of people don't have answer for those. I mean, I, you must be meeting tens of thousands of people, and discovering the same. But I feel after after like man, this is like a basic. Why you are building this for whom they have no answers. And um. And, and and look, it's um, it's like going back to basic, right? I I'm pretty obviously there there are stuff in the in my book that you you read and you say that's obvious, right? Yep. You're stating it's obvious, and I am. But uh, <laughs> we need to repeat that multiple times for people to actually go back to the basic, right? This is one oh one. If you want to create value, then solve a problem. That's the simplest way, right? If you want to understand what's the problem, then speak with the users. Otherwise, you don't know. Otherwise, you are just a sample of one person, right? And, uh, um, and so these are all obvious, right? And, uh, um, and, and when I tell people that, then, then they occasionally, they would say, 
yeah, this is obvious. Yeah. One, one, one of the interesting part in, in is um, understanding users. You, you mentioned that earlier and you're right, right? Because we want to think of the perspective of ourselves as a user, right? Mm -hmm. And we're only a sample of one. And, uh, and for a second, this is a very interesting experiment that I occasionally would do in, in with an audience. I would ask them, okay, here are, you know, two different ways of, or three different ways of using Waze app, right? Which one you are using, right? And then all of a sudden, what I need to tell the people is look around you. There are people that are not using it the same way that you are. And it's not that they're stupid. They're simply different. That's it, right? And so when you use a product in a certain way, it does not even cross your mind that there might be a different way of using it. When you face a challenge, and, and this is becoming in particular, when you deal with the ability to adapt something new. You know, most, most product builders are either innovators or early adapters. The good thing about myself, I'm an early majority. Yeah. And as an early majority, what I see is the state of mind of the early majority. And the state mm -hmm. of mind is very simple. Don't rock the boat. I'm very happy with what I'm currently doing. Why do you need me to use salesforce.com if I have an Excel and I've been using that for the last two decades, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so the state of mind is that new is more scary than create more value. And if this is the case, then, then I don't want changes. Right? Yeah. I'm afraid of changes. Most people are afraid of changes. They don't want the change. And what you need to do is actually understand that part and realize that the change is going to be hard for them. And uh, um, and it's not simple for them to actually, it's not enough that you'll tell them that you're gonna create them that. They need to see someone using it. They need to see someone that tells them what to do. They are afraid of the change. And in particular, what they're afraid the most is that they're going to run into something that the system is going to ask them something that they don't know. Yeah. And they will feel like stupid and people don't like to feel like stupid. Or they, you would ask for something that I don't understand why you even need that, right? And so, um, you know, in the registration, you're gonna ask me for something that uh, that I, you know what, I don't even know what's the value. Why should I even register? And, yeah. uh, and so um, building a successful product is a journey. And part of it is that you need to watch and listen to your users all the time. And in particular, those that fail. Hmm. Because this is the only way for you to improve, right? If you speak with the users that uh, retain and keep on using the product and they tell you, what are they going to tell you? They're going to tell you it's awesome, right? Yeah. Because you create value for them. The fact is that they're coming back, which means that you create value for them. And that's it, right? And they might want to dream of uh, some other features that you don't need. And they don't. They don't need the fact is that they're using the product, right? But if you go and speak with those that have tried and discontinued to use the product, right, have churned, then they will tell them, then they will tell you why. And that's the most important feedbacks that you need. Yeah, no, I, I love your point. Like the entrepreneur should be early majority, not the innovator, because as an early majority, you will be much more critical about things changing and, and changing the status quo. 
And in fact, I want to follow up with the question because you mentioned about product market fit. And I, I tell everybody now, it's about value creation, whether users are using it or not. But if you see the mobility sector is going through a huge transformation right now, like there's a lot of electrification, automation, we see urban air mobility, we see drones, we see all kinds of crazy idea, which is people are promoting. And during this period, you see a lot of noise about a lot of thing, which is like a fad, like suddenly it boom up and then crash, like micro mobility in a lot of cities. Uh, the the bike sharing uh, gain up uh, the free float in China it was huge uh, Ofo and Mobike and suddenly it disappeared. So, what do you think the founder should do to differentiate between a like a really a real problem or a fad? Because like a lot of time when you have easy money, you see a lot of uh, fashionable thing, but which will not last long. So, how founder can differentiate? So. Um... So you go back to basic, right? And the basic of mobility is that you speak with the users and you understand that there are only three uh, parameters that, uh, that define the convenience, speed, and price. Yeah. That's it. Um, if you're building a mobility startup and you don't have, if you have unlimited resources to fund that, then you can try to address something dramatically bigger, right? So you can build a... Uh, um, you know, um, X space, you can build the uh, people mover, you can build multiple stuff. But if you really are a standard startup with limited funding, then focus on a problem that you are independent in the ability to address. So you don't need the government to say yes. You don't need anyone to say yes. And micro mobility, by the way, turns out to be very successful in some places. By the yep. way, tell us. Tel Aviv is uh, the most successful micro-mobility for all the operators in the world. Right? So uh, even if someone will tell you, wait a minute, Paris is bigger, yes, but uh, profitability is higher in Tel Aviv. Now it's higher because Tel Aviv is a small place with nice weather to actually use micro-mobility and paid with a huge amount of... Uh, um, of uh, bike lanes. Yeah. So the result is that this is very successful. Now, if that, what does it mean about the next city? And if you look at the parameters of what makes one city successful and what makes other city fail, then you should go only to the places that it's going to be successful. You shouldn't go to a place that that you're not going to move the needle. Like Toronto, there is no micro mobility in Toronto because the winter is way too cold, right? So, so people are not going to use that during the winter time. And, and it's a large city, right? You cannot go from anywhere to anywhere, right? So you end up with a very local solution. Yeah. And, and in Tel Aviv, um, it's, um, you know, it's five miles north to, north to south. That's it, right? In five miles, you can do this with micromobility. And usually you don't need that. Well, they're all five miles. Um, and, uh, um, and so uh, a significant part of it is to understand, number one, you need to be completely independent. If you want to rely on someone else and trust them to do the heavy lifting for you, guess what? They are not going to do the heavy lifting for you. They are going to do the heavy lifting for themselves, not for you. Yeah. yeah. Number two, um, you start with the problem. You focus on the user and you create value for them. If you create value for them, then they will keep on using them. Now, it's true that uh, you know, some cities like Paris actually wanted to ban the use of um, of uh, scooters, right? Of the, the micro mobility solutions there. 
because obviously it turns out to be very successful and, and creates new problems, right? And so if you think that you are going to remove those and go back to the previous problem, wait a minute. No, no, no. <laughs> it worked that way. The biggest, the previous problem were bigger than the current one. Yeah. And, and so they will need to figure out a different way to address that. And I agree that there should be regulations on that, right? And so maybe limiting, maybe creating uh, dedicated lanes, in particular creating places that they can park um, and everyone follows, right? Look, up until recently, Uber was um, amazing, right? Now I'm hearing more and more and more complaints about using Uber because uh, the balance yeah. was shifted. And, and all of a sudden, in particular in Europe, Uber is not a reliable solution. Oh, yeah. Um, it, while in the U.S. it still is, but in Europe it's not a reliable solution anymore, right? If it's not reliable, then then guess what? People are going someplace else, right? Because it's not anywhere to anywhere anymore. If I cannot trust that to to, to arrive in time and to you know take me to the airport or take me wherever, then I'm gonna find different alternative. No, that's that's, uh, a, that's a great point. Thank you. you. Sorry, you want to add something more? And so, so I think that like, mobility space is, uh, is, is, is huge, right? At the end of the day, let's go back to the nature of the beast. You spend an hour a day sitting behind the driving, the driving wheel, the steering wheel. And uh, this is, um, you know, about 4% of the day and about uh, maybe, uh, um, you know, 6% of the relevant hours of the day for you. And, uh, and it's a lot, right? If I will give you that time, then you really like that. Yeah. So if I would have a, ma a magical teleportation system, then everyone is going to sign <laughs> up. Right? Now, the problem is that I don't. <laughs> At the end of the day, we realize that uh, that mobility is complex. And if mm -hmm. you look at the last decade or last 20 years, look, when we started Waze, we thought that we're going to help people to avoid traffic jams. Today, there are more traffic jams than 10 years ago. That's it, right? And in particular, if you think of India, then this is way more severe, right? Because oh, yeah. the nature of the beast, and, and by the way, India is, is you know, the largest country and obviously everything is, uh, is in larger scale there. But if you think that uh, in Sao Paulo, things are better or Jakarta or Nairobi or Mexico City, it's not, right? It's not. Uh, it's as bad as it is in Delhi, right? And or Mumbai, or, or um, and so, um, um, so so to solve mobility at a larger scale, you need the help of the government or the municipalities. And this requires major decision, right? Because the only way to do that is actually allocating half of the roads and the streets for public transportation only. And then you can do it. Then you can create an impact. If you are an entrepreneur and you cannot move that needle, yeah. then you need to address a local problem that will make an impact. Like I mentioned earlier, the first mile or hmm. um, or um, going to event, right? So events is a is a major problem of mobility, right? So just imagine that uh, um, you know there is a major soccer game or. And, and I'm or, or football game, right? Or a concert, right? And there are a hundred thousand people moving going into this event, and then they need to clear up the area. And uh, yeah, um, and so if you, you know, and and out of those hundred thousand people, then in many cases, you know, just imagine college football in the U.S., right? Um, 
it's a university that has 30 or 40,000 people studying. Mm -hmm. And that means approximately 20,000 vehicles are going to come to this event. Where exactly these 20,000 vehicles are going to park? Now, this is a problem that is worth solving. Obviously, the frequency of use is not every day. Yeah. But they play, they have multiple plays, uh, multiple games throughout the season, right? Throughout the season. And, and this is a problem that it's worth solving because it's significant. And uh, so frequency of use is a good thing, but it's not always needed, right? If it's a bigger problem by itself, then address that. Yeah. No, I, I fully agree with you. It's like... Uh... Sometimes there's a lot of these things that depend on the local government. And if you're dependent on the regulation, it will never work. And and yeah. I would say the success of Uber was early. They didn't follow the regulation because they said, if we start following the regulation, Uber would never be Uber. What is it today? So exactly. sometimes you have yeah. to be a rebel. You have to be a rebel. And look, at the end of the day, occasionally they will shut you down, right? Uber had multiple fights in multiple right. markets. But, uh, but the reality is that if you become part of the solution of the system, then you're less likely to be shut down oh, or yes. you will be addressed and, and, you know, and you will basically need to address some of the concerns, right? Okay. So, so no, no, you, in New York city, you have to have a TLC number, right? Otherwise it cannot be an over. Okay. That makes sense. Then, then you're part of the system. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, makes sense, right? Uh, and for a second, I would say for Uber, biggest city in the world is uh, San Paolo. And still, when I'm there, even though that Uber is way more convenient, medallion taxis way yeah. faster because they have the public transportation lane. Mm. And Uber cannot ride there. Right? And so um, if if they would work with the municipalities and get the ability to... for ride on public transportation lane, then it would be way better solution. Yeah, no, that that's truly, 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 you know, great point. And, and I agree with you. It's like finding a local problem. Now, you know, the question I want to ask you, you started Waze in 2007 and world has changed after that. I mean, the whole navigation system, the mapping industry has changed. I saw the Google uh, annual day recently and they show how Google mapping is now integrating. And also now they are expanding Waze into lot of other vehicles. What do you think is the future of digital mapping and navigation? And and if you get a chance to start another mapping startup again, will you do it or or how different it will be? So um so I think that you know we we go back to the problem we're trying to solve, right? And uh, um and and by the way Google Maps is very different than Waze, right? If I would ask 100 people that are using Waze, how often do you use Waze? What they will tell me is that uh, every day. Right? Yeah, yeah. If I would ask 100 people that are using Google Maps, uh, how often do you use Google Maps? They will tell me when I need it. Right? Yes. Yeah, which is not the same, right? Um, the use case is different, and therefore the applications are different, and therefore you cannot even merge them, right? Because they are press different use case, and, the, and you cannot. Yeah. combine multiple use cases and, and end up with a single product for them. Um, and uh, um, so so for a second, I would say um, huge impact on the world, right? Um, you look at the, the market before ways and nearly no one was using a driving app. And today, everyone is using driving app. 
Um, and so obviously the, the market have changed dramatically, major um, disruption to the market. Um, and when disruption happens, then obviously player change. Uh, um, and um, what used to be TomTom, you know, the major provider of those uh, navigation devices is, uh, they only need to barely exist, right? Because they don't provide a device anymore for consumers. Um, now, um, what we had in the time that people actually had uh, built-in navigation systems in the car, no one cares, right? I just want to be able to connect my ways to the entertainment system, large screen, and this is it, right? And, and so this is uh, um, um, Apple Play and Google Auto addressed that uh, very well, and, uh, and we end up with uh, having... Uh, um, you know, the, the ability to see that the driving app on the mainstream. So obviously the world have changed. Is there a room for more changes? So, so let me start with the future of that, right? If we will have autonomous vehicles, then people don't care anymore. If you sit yeah. in the back seat, you don't care anymore. You don't care if you need to make a left or need to make a right. It's not your problem anymore. What you do want to know is when exactly we're going to get there. That's it, right? And the end of story, right? And so is that going to be the same way as before? Probably not. Is that going to be something else? Probably yes. Hmm. Um, because, the, the you know, the, the, the um, autonomous vehicles will still need to have a navigation system to get to the destination. But it's not going to be a driver app. Hmm. If there is no driver, then the driver is not important anymore. Um, and, you know, it's going to be somewhat similar to what you have on an airplane when you're sitting in the, you know, in the in economy class and the screen tells you that, okay, we're going to get there in one hour and 40 minutes and this is approximately where we are about and this is how, uh, you know, the, the speed wind and the temperature outside and all sorts of information that that are, you know, just answering a matter of curiosity because you don't really care if there is minus 60 degrees out there <laughs> you are not out there right? That's good, right? And so you don't really care but uh, but still they ended up to be interesting irrelevant information um if this is going to be the case then it's going to be the same right just imagine that you are riding a bus and or or, or the metro right and so you know what is the what is the station and and you know, and the, every station tells you this is your station or not your station, and that's it, right? And where exactly you are, you don't care. That's very interesting. That's what I mean. I agree with you. Once it's like when you sit in the bus or in the train, you don't care about the route, navigation, anything. You just reach to your destination, you know the time, and that's it. And with the autonomous, and that's it, right? And, and the only thing that you would like is maybe get an alert a few minutes beforehand. So you would, um, in particular, in a train that is making a very rapid stops. And so you want to get off before, uh, you, you want to wake up before you get off. Yeah, yeah. So uh, are you advising any startup which is building a future mapping product or something like that for autonomous vehicle? Um, I was at the board of uh, Here Technology for a while. Uh, but... Um, um, not anymore, not right now. Not right. Uh, I think that uh, one of the biggest challenges that, uh, um, you, you know, you ask yourself, so what exactly is, is Waze good enough for uh, autonomous vehicles? And the answer is probably yes, even though that it's not accurate enough. 
Mm. Um, and uh, because uh, autonomous vehicles have limited brain ability, right? So, so they would know they start. So, but autonomous vehicles start from the point of view of let's not crash, right? Yeah. <laughs> but when we are driving our car, it's not the only thing that comes to our mind, right? Um, and so driving is way more than let's not crash, right? And so let's get, keep a distance from the car ahead of us and let's make sure that we are not, uh, um, you know, moving out of our lane when there is a vehicle that we might uh, run into them and so forth. Um, and over, over the time, there was improvement from let's not crash into a little bit more and more and more and more and more like driving, right? And still, if you go into an autonomous vehicle, and sitting in the driver's seat, you are going to be frustrated. And the reason is that the autonomous vehicle is driving differently, different than you. And you're used to you to your driving and not someone else's. And so you're sitting in the driver's seat, and for a second, I would say, let's say that there is a curve in the road, and you are usually taking the inner part of it, and the autonomous vehicle is taking the middle part of it. It's not the same lane, it's not the same line that you would take. The result is that you would feel uncomfortable. Um, and if you wouldn't be sitting in the back seat, you wouldn't know and you wouldn't care. Yeah. As long as you are still in the driving position, it's very hard to build a system that will drive like you. Mm. And, uh, um, and at the same time, I would say, look, the autonomous vehicles will not speed up above speed limit. Right? You might you might occasionally, right? You might do that during uh, overtaking a vehicle and then you don't care how fast you're driving because you want to complete the overtaking as yeah. fast as possible, right? And so autonomous vehicles wouldn't know that. And they will not hmm. break the law. Um, and so the result is that this is going to be very different than your driving and obviously requires different mapping for that. But uh, some of the major issues, and this is a uh, you know always uh, a discussion that I had with um, some of the of the ability of building a way more detailed map, and I said it's not needed. Yeah, because then then people will tell me, okay, wait a minute, we can with the sensors we can detect that there is a pothole in the road, and I said, okay, let's say that there is a pothole in the road, and so what are you going to do about it? And then they will tell you, we're gonna slow down. I said, okay, and what do you think that all the drivers ahead of you just did? Yeah. <laughs> so now, that's it. So the, the why is not important. The yeah. action is always going to be the same. And if this is the case, then simpler, you know, autonomous, autonomous vehicle map is going to do exactly the same job as a way more sophisticated and deep I, I fully agree with you. I mean, that's sometimes we rely too much on the technology, but forget about the, the human side of it, the human angle of it. And like you mentioned, sometimes technology can solve hundreds of problems, but do you really need it? Like finding a pothole and slowing down, it all the driver will do it. If there's a bump on the road, all the driver will you know take that precaution and you know. And that's how we drive today. Exactly. And for a second, I would say the beauty of Waze is that uh, Waze doesn't care why, right? If there yeah. is a traffic jam, then there is a traffic jam, right? If there is a slowdown, there is a slowdown, right? Why? I, you know, it's it's interesting, but it doesn't change anything in terms of your behavior. 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, if it's it's exists, it exists. You just uh, take action accordingly. So you don't say. Now your second company about Move It because I'm a big fan of Move It. I actually visited their headquarters in Israel last year, and I see they are changing a lot. They are bringing new product, new ideas, new new kind of a solution in the market. But their core will remain the 1.5 billion worldwide user. What was your experience when you were working with Move It, and how did you manage to scale it up? Because uh, it's it's a little different from Waze, but solving a different type of problem. But uh, what kind of a strategy and tactics did you apply to bring that high number of user and engagement uh, with such large audience? So Movit is uh, very similar to ways, right? With uh, two aspects. Number one, it answers the same question. How do I get from here to wherever I want to go right now? But this one is driving and this one is using public transportation. The second part is that the outbreak, the scalability came from from crowdsourcing. Because if you look at the data that um, Google Pen can provide or um, on public transportation, it might be okay in some cities, but it's completely you know, lacking a lot of the information in, in most of the world. Movit is crowdsourced all this data mm. from users that will tell you where exactly the bus station is and which informal bus is actually stopping here, right? And uh, and you think about it in in, in developing countries, which is uh, you know still ninety percent of the world, and on uh, it's eighty percent of the world. Um, and uh, this is the case, right? Yeah. Um, and so, um, and just giving you a very simple example, right? Let's say that there is a bus station at a certain point of time, just before the intersection, right? And now there is construction here and someone is moving the bus stations to be after the intersection, right? Because that bus is unable to, to stop at the, the original. No one is changing that information anymore. Hmm. Google will send you to a bus station that does not exist. Move it will send you to the right location of the bus station. And that's huge difference, right? Because uh, yeah, 10 to 15% of the bus stations will be moved throughout the year hmm. because of instructions because of uh, you know complaints of the of the of the people because of multiple reasons yeah and they will stay there no one is moving them back and move it provide the accurate information and again like you mentioned about value creation so if you create value right. people will come right and it's all because of crowdsource right because the people that know are the people that are responsible for the data that's uh, that's so that's uh, that's so true. I mean, uh, providing that value creation is is very important, and and providing that feedback it's is very important that you can attract user. Now, the the other question I want to check with you and uh, is is about a uh, lot of discussion happening about generative AI. Everybody is right now talking about generative AI, and and everybody is thinking how the world will change with AI and how we are going to move in a different era. What's your view on that, and and how do you see it's really going to change our life and, and some of the impact it will leave on us. So, so I would say a few things and then maybe I would ask uh, Adi to join the conversation as well. Um, so, so the first thing for me, it's always about the use case. So what is the use case? What, where, where, what is the value that we create? Now, if, you, if we are going to end up with the ability to actually provide uh, uh, 
um, you know, essays for students at elementary school or middle school, then it's not significant enough. People are not willing to pay for it. If this is going to be become more and more and more specific, we are not a product market fit yet. It's not good enough. And it will require us to become specific for each one of those markets. Now, at the end of the day, generative AI or GPT, this is a language model, right? This is not facts model. It's a language model, which is basically in many cases going to end up saying what makes sense in terms of the language and not what makes sense in terms of the facts. Mm. Um, you know, Adi occasionally sending me very, very funny stuff about very funny facts about myself when when she's asking the you know generative uh, um, AI to to tell them you know who is Aurelian what is a, the book is all about different stuff and then you, you read that and you realize that wait a minute this is so off this is so off the fact that you're 80 percent um, accurate is okay if you wouldn't use the other 20 percent of bullshit hmm. If you would be incomplete, it's one thing. But if you start to generate stuff that is the language makes sense and not the data makes sense, then it's going to end up worse than before. And and do you think they can they can be used for customer service? Because I, I in fact I asked Chat GPT, how can be useful for public transport and user? And they said, Oh, I can be your customer service executive, I can be your journey planner, I can be data analytics, like do you meet some of the startups which are thinking to use that in their customer service experience or, or let's say, booking? So uh, I think that uh, the ones that are going to use that as a customer experience or customer support are actually the large corporates. They have, there is a value for that, right? If they're going to reduce the expenses that they're spending on the customer support. But then you need to train the model with the specific data yeah. of owning a specific product or specific company, right? Because otherwise, you are going to basically be useless with so many words, right? Mm -hmm. This is going to be even more frustrating uh, than before. I Okay, I agree with you because uh, they have more motivation and incentive to implement because of the cost and the complexity of their, their system. And also they have data, so they can use those data to train the AI model. If, if they use the data to train the, the to train an engine, then they will end up with something that is better. If they don't use that, and, and by the way, they will need to reduce the um, um, you know the level of the ability of the generate generations of the language, right? Because um, you know providing long answers or something that short answer is required. Yeah, it's not practice. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now, uh, Yuri, I want to discuss a little bit about your advisor and mentorship side. I mean, you are kind of a builder and advisor to so many startups. What do you look in a startup that you choose to advise or support? Because I'm pretty sure a lot of people are coming to you and say, hey, Yuri, we need your help. We need your guidance, but you must be very picky. So what are the first thing or say top five thing you look in any startup you really want to support and help? It's uh, simpler than you think, right? At the end of the day, my destiny is about value creation, right? And so the, the most important thing is whether or not I can create value. And this is a combination of two things, uh, of actually three things, right? My perspective, uh, uh, do I think that I can add value? Um, yeah. 
have the time to create value. Um, and uh, um, and this is my own personal perspective, and then whether or not I want to create value in this space or not, right? Because I can create value in multiple areas, but not all of them I want. <laughs> and so that that part is is simpler. The second part is, you know, in order for me to have a meaningful advice, then in addition to the fact that I want to do that and I know what to say, I need the other party to listen. So this is about communication and relationship that I can build with uh, the CEO of the startup. Because if I if I'm telling them stuff that they don't they don't care or they don't listen, then I don't create value. And in fact, I don't want to be there. And then the last element, whether or not it makes sense, uh, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're right. I I'm picky because I can only do X number of startups, um, and so it needs to be paid off as well. That's. That's so true. Like, yeah, even if you are giving advice and if somebody don't listen to your implement, it makes no sense. And 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 I love your well, point. I'm about... my time and I'm not creating value. And my dad once told me that uh, as soon as you stop creating value, you are starting to create damage. Mm. Now, we might want to say that this is not a single point. It's actually a little bit more than a point. But yeah, this is the direction, right? If you... If you have created value and the value that you create is going down and down and down and down, there is a certain point that you start to create damage. It's like eating food. So at a certain point, eating food is good, but beyond that, it, it's actually damaging your body than, than helping. Yes. That That's so true. No, thank you so much, Yuri. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your feedback on these points. I, I know we took a little longer time than expected, but, but I really enjoyed. And I hope, uh, like you said, uh, finding some value in this discussion and I'll I'll happily share your discussion with a lot of these city officials and mayors and see, you never know, probably we have uh, some city coming forward and say, hey, we want to implement this solution. Absolutely. I actually agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be inviting some other inspiring guests in the coming week. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast online to get the notification for the next episode. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it will help us to spread our message. If you have any feedback or suggestion for this podcast, please do write to us at info at the rate mobility-innovator.com. I look forward to see you next time. Thank you.